Hi, I'm Laura Champion. I'm a fundraising strategist at Blakely and the education chair for Congress this year. And I am joined by Anne Rosenfield, and I'm with Charitably Speaking. And I also had the honor of being the chair this year for Congress. And this session is talking about uh, fundraising campaigns and reconciliation, which uh, is definitely a topic well worth learning more about. Yeah, such an important topic. We were so happy to have this session at Congress this year, and we know that you're going to get a lot out of listening to this episode and all the other episodes we're dropping into your feed this week and beyond. So please enjoy these episodes, whether for the first time or uh, if you're coming back for more. Uh, we hope you're really enjoying them and that you will join us for Congress next year. Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to the final session of the day. This is Thundering Ahead when a capital campaign becomes an act of reconciliation. Uh, before I introduce today's speakers, I just want to get a couple of housekeeping items out of the way. Uh, please make sure you put your phones on silent mode uh, for the session so we don't have any interruptions. Just a reminder. Uh, tonight, there's a social event happening um, at Second City. If you've registered, um, that's great. If you haven't and you want more information, you can uh, make your way up to the show office um, up by the registration desk after the session today, and they can give you some more information. Um, and this is just a reminder that tomorrow morning, uh, breakfast is being served one level below this on the 100 level, and then everybody's going to make their way into the John Bassett Theatre on the same level for the opening plenary tomorrow morning. Uh, so don't forget. Um, and just one more thing to note is the session is actually being recorded uh, for a podcast for future use. So as part of that, we want to make sure that we get everybody's questions on the recording. So I'm going to be coming around with a microphone to anybody who, who has a question just so that we can, can capture it and so everybody in the room can hear it as well. So without further ado, it's my pleasure to introduce today's speakers. Uh, Stephanie Hughes is the campaign director with DCG Philanthropic Services. Fueled by collaboration, creative energy, and concrete results, Stephanie exudes a drive to connect with people and to deliver value that fits the overall fundraising and campaign objectives. We're also joined today by Tara Jensen, who's development manager with the Wanescuin Heritage Park in Saskatoon, and has most recently managed Thundering Ahead, a $40 million national capital fundraising campaign, which we are about to hear more about, I believe. So please join me in welcoming Stephanie and Tara. Thank you, Adam. Well, thank you so much. And um, thank you for having us uh, to share more about Wanescuin and how meaningful engagement in diversity uh, can strengthen a capital campaign. So I'd like to acknowledge that we're gathered in the Dish with One Spoon territory, a treaty between the Anishinaabe, uh, Mississaugas, and Haudenosaunee that bound them to protect the land. Today, uh, we'll share stories oriented to the people of Treaty 6 territory and the traditional homeland of the Métis, uh, just north of Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. To orient who I am in this narrative, uh, my father's family settled in Saskatchewan uh, and they established themselves as part of a Mennonite farming family. Uh, we often hear from rural folks, uh, especially when we talk about reconciliation and decolonization. We often hear them say, but my ancestors worked so hard on this land. Um, and mine did too. Uh, but now we're able to recognize that the land had been prepared for them by the indigenous people who'd been living there for many, many thousands of years. My mom arrived in Canada as an immigrant from India in 1970. Uh, and thanks to her, I come, <laughs> I come from a long line of strong feminist women. Uh, and I like to tell people that because I, I think it's fun. Uh, as a child, I was raised with these two very distinctive cultures. And uh, for many years, I referred to myself as being half-half. Uh, but I learned recently uh, from a Métis educator who said, there's nothing half about me. And I also like that. So anyway, that's who I am. Thanks, Tara. Uh, as Tara mentioned, um, my name is Stephanie Hughes and I work with DCG, Philanthropic Services. We are a Saskatchewan-based consulting firm uh, specializing in fund development. So we actually have an office here in Toronto, one in BC, and do work all throughout Saskatchewan and Alberta. Uh, and we were, actually, we were honored to be the, the firm that was hired to help direct the campaign Thundering Ahead with Juan Escawin. And to orient a little bit of who I am, I'm originally an East Coast girl. I'm not sure if there's any Maritimers, the Maritimers in the room or not. There we go. All right. 
And uh, I grew up in Winnipeg as well, too. So I moved to Saskatoon in 2007, and it was immediately apparent of not just the geographic divide that separates the city from east to west and rich to poor, but also the racial divide that very much mirrored that segregation. Um, and this is even coming from my work in Halifax when I worked with Picto Landing First Nation. So I was drawn to this campaign. It was one of the few times at DCG where we're offered a choice of projects to work on. And I could not pinpoint at the time, back in 2014, why I wanted to direct this campaign. I just told uh, Don Grizelitz, my, my boss, that I'm drawn to it. I think it's going to be important. I don't know why. And it's actually throughout the three years that we worked, and even as recently as today, where it's, you're, I'm seeing those pieces come together to tell that bigger story of reconciliation and something that's bigger than ourselves. So what we'll actually be sharing today is uh, how meaningful engagement in diversity can strengthen a capital campaign, different communication strategies with a whole bunch of multiple stakeholders, how this nonprofit and consulting firm work together in an integrated way, and how Wanuscame incorporated reconciliation into a capital campaign. We do want to note before we begin that we do recognize that we are two non-Indigenous people speaking about an Indigenous project and reconciliation. Um, it is an honour and we, we take that very seriously. Um, it's very much a privilege. And we want to say too that this act of reconciliation is very specific to Wanuskewin, how it played out. It's very specific to the team that we had in place and at the time in history. And we don't think that there's one fit for all organizations out there or even all First Nations or Indigenous people. Um, but we're hoping today from what we're sharing our own story and our own journey that it may inspire you to maybe look at your, your organizations in a little bit of a different light and figure out how you can uniquely respond to those calls to action and participate in reconciliation as a fundraiser. Okay, so the first question is, are there, is there anyone in the room who's been to Wanuskewin? Okay, nice. good. Uh, is there anyone in the room who's from Saskatchewan as well? You were born there. Awesome. Okay. okay. Well, well, we'll tell you the whole story. And uh, for those of you who haven't been there, I do encourage you to come. Um, and you'll, you'll learn more about that as we get through, this, uh, get through this presentation. So the contemporary story that I will start with begins in the early 1900s. Uh, the lands uh, had been homesteaded by a reclusive rancher named Mike Witkowski to the south and the Penner family to the north. Um, from the 1930s onwards, these properties were managed by these two, company, or two, two families. Around the same time, uh, now archaeologist Dr. Ernie Walker was a ranch hand um, from Mr. Vakowski, and he would move cattle across the property. Uh, he often remarked that there were artifacts eroding out of almost every surface. Uh, eventually, Dr. Walker moved to Texas, and uh, Vakowski would phone him on Sunday afternoons. Um, they'd had a tradition where uh, they would meet on Sunday afternoons in person when Ernie lived in Saskatoon, and then uh, that tradition seemed to just continue on, even though they weren't physically in the same place. One Sunday afternoon, uh, Mr. Vikowski said that he had decided to retire and he wanted to leave the land to someone who would look after it. Despite signs over the years to the contrary, he'd noticed too how special the place was. And this was just one of many miraculous moments that have happened in Wanuskewin's story. Dr. Walker then reached into his personal networks uh, and a family by the name of McNabb from Gordon First Nation in southern Saskatchewan was instrumental in coming up with the idea to develop Wanuskewin into a heritage park. Um, the idea of a heritage park was very foreign at the time. Uh, it was loosely based on the United States park system, but nobody in the country uh, in the early 1980s was um, doing community-based projects. And at that time, this is 1980s in Saskatchewan, um, Indigenous and non-Indigenous people did not work together. Um, so even just the concept of coming up with this idea was really uh, revolutionary. Wanuskewin is not a provincial or federal or municipal park. It's a standalone entity. All of the decisions that we make are made uh, through a board of directors and with the guidance of an elders council. So our governance structure itself is quite different. Uh, Opimaha Valley, which we'll show you some photographs of uh, in a moment, was named for the late Senator Hilliard McNabb. So these relationships have been longstanding and are honored in the naming of, of various sites at Wanuskewin. As with all things related to our operations, we're guided by ceremony. So in 1984, there was a sweat lodge ceremony in Opimaha Valley. 
This lodge was the culmination of many conversations and discussions, and a decision was going to be made. Would the elders, and by extension, indigenous nations in Saskatchewan, support the development of Wanuskewin into a park? And we'll come back to the answer. Let's rewind for a minute. So if you'd been standing on the banks of Opimaha Valley 12,000 years ago, you'd have seen a mile-high sheet of ice and snow receding toward the horizon. This was the Wisconsin and Glacier, and this glacier left in its stead a braided river system. The South Saskatchewan River, which flows through Saskatoon, eventually dug down deeper in its trench, leaving a much smaller Opimaha Creek running through a really wide valley. So how many of you have heard that Saskatchewan is flat and boring? How many of you have driven through Saskatchewan without stopping? Okay, <laughs> that sounds about right. We'd like to bring guests to the edge of this valley and ask if they think it's true. It's not. Um, Stephanie and I can vouch for you. The topography is, is exceptional. Uh, it's a deep valley um, with uh, a really spectacular river and scenery flowing through it. Um, despite this piece of sort of pristine nature, we are on the northern edge of Saskatoon. You can bike to us from a downtown Saskatoon hotel. So there's this sense of being isolated and in the natural environment while also being next to a major urban center with all of the services that you might potentially want while traveling or living. From the moment Opimaha Valley became habitable for humans, at least 6,400 years ago, which is 2,000 years older than the pyramids, until the signing of Treaty 6, in 1876, this valley was continuously occupied and by every single indigenous group uh, that occupied the Great Plains area. After the signing of Treaty 6, the property was homesteaded. In 1979, the Miwasan Valley Authority, which is a Saskatoon-based conservation agency, commissioned uh, renowned architect Raymond Moriyama to do a 100-year master plan uh, the idea for the master plan was to develop a public riverbank. And at that time, Moriyama remarked about Wanuskewin that we are not the first to see and care for the land's beauty. Special care and attention will be required to protect it. So why? What's exceptional about Wanuskewin? Opimaha Valley is an ecological island less than one square mile large. It contains within it 19 pre-contact archaeological sites, two major bison jumps, teepee rings, habitation sites, and the northernmost medicine wheel on the Great Plains area. There's an increased biodiversity of flora and fauna. It's the longest running archeological research project in Canadian history. And it's been led by University of Saskatchewan distinguished professor and archeologist, Dr. Ernie Walker. It helps us to understand a history of indigenous land use and their interaction with the environment throughout millennia. And it sustains a spirit and a sense of peace that is intangible and absolute all at once. So about five years ago, it became apparent that the Wanuskewin iconic interpretive center was aging and exhibits were actually reaching the end of their life cycle and the community interest was waning. So there was this urgent need for renewal, but no donor base whatsoever at Wanuskewin. Uh, so the park was introduced to a corporate donor um, to talk about a modest donation to bring in some exhibits to liven it up. Uh, this donor gave Wanuskewin the opportunity that charities and nonprofits dream of. He said, okay, I'm in for the exhibits, so about $8 million at this point, but let's think bigger. What can we do for this community? What can we do that would be magnificent? So now let's think about the landscape in Saskatchewan for just a moment. Wanuskewin is a gathering place that honors Indigenous interaction for over 6,000 years. It has one of, Saskatchewan has one of the largest populations of Indigenous people in the country and the highest number of residential school survivors in the country. And Wanuskewin, at this point, did not have an in-house fundraiser um, or an existing donor base. So despite all these perceived barriers, we still decided to move forward. Thanks. Sorry, friend. <laughs> so what we did is uh, we launched the $40 million Thundering Ahead Renewal Project. Uh, so going from eight to 40 was quite a, a leap of faith. Um, but part of what we talked about with Tara, given the history of Honest Game, and to show you a little bit more of that context of the background that's gotten into building the park up until this point. 
we officially launched in February of 2017, uh, and Juan has pulled together a remarkable team of Indigenous and non-Indigenous leaders from across Saskatchewan. In addition to bringing together people from all communities, it also was the first time in Saskatchewan's philanthropic history that the CEOs of the three largest corporations in our province joined together on a capital campaign. So we had the CEO of then Potash Corp, now Nutrien, the CEO of Federated Co-op, Scott Banda, and the CEO of Cameco, Tim Gitzel, all working on the same project, all putting their names and their reputations on the line for this vision. The campaign cabinet also included an honorary chief, uh, an elders council, and a commitment to those traditional values. And these are our fantastic co-chairs, uh, Wayne Brownlee, the former CFO of Nutrien, or Potash Corp, and the former Saskatoon Tribal Chief, Felix Thomas. Um, Thundering Ahead has been, in its, in its essence and in itself, an act of reconciliation. So when Stephanie mentions that we integrated traditional values into our capital campaign, um, we thought we'd break down what that, what that means uh, and how that was actually applied to the development of the campaign materials. So yesterday, if any of you were in the storytelling uh, session, uh, one of the discussion items that came up was that uh, ideas when presented in groups of three are more compelling. Uh, and when we started uh, to develop our case for support, which we actually have a copy of, um, we started with three pillars. What we very quickly came to realize, uh, and what our elders guided us in, is that four is a traditional number, four represents balance, and so we now have four pillars, which we'll share in a moment. We had elders involved in every part of the process, from developing our key messages right down to actually vetting our prospect list. Um, and that meant um, making decisions about who we would be, how, who, who we would be asking for donations from. Um, one of the things that has remained um, really central to Wanuskewin's core values is that we do not serve alcohol. We offer meeting spaces, and people like to get married there, and there are often um, social functions. We do not serve alcohol, and we've, we've really stayed close to that value. As a result, despite the fact that there had been alcohol companies on our prospect list, uh, we took them off. We did not ask for, for any support from any alcohol-based organizations. Um, and traditional methods for asking for something were employed. So um, one of the ways that this uh, was integrated was it meant that we gave a gift before we asked for anything. Uh, and we commissioned a local Indigenous woman entrepreneur named Devin Fiddler of She Native uh, to commission these bison leather bags. Um, and these satchels were given with an offering of tobacco to every major donor at our first meeting before we asked for any sort of support um, and before a pitch was made. We had Indigenous engagement at every level of the campaign, mirroring that of our organization. Uh, and that meant um, including diversity on every single first call. So while Stephanie or I, and often both of us together, would show up for second and third calls um, and did a lot of the follow-up and a lot of the proposal writing and um, various other aspects of things, we always had one of our volunteers from the Indigenous leadership on the cabinet um, to step up and uh, join us on those first calls. And we read the TRC calls to action, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission calls to action. Uh, we determined which calls to action were relevant to our mission and how supporting this project would help organizations and governments uh, also respond. Let's get into the campaign pillars. So what you'll see in the, the case for support that's coming around, what Tara mentioned, is that there was four pillars that we wanted to hit or focus on with the Thundering Ahead campaign. Um, we won't go into them in, in too depth right today, um, but we wanted to make sure that Wanuskewin could be elevated from an archaeological site to an interpretive site of excellence, uh, international centre of excellence in the education, interpreta interpretation and preservation of Indigenous art and culture. We wanted to make sure that uh, it would be a global destination, celebrating these early Northern American civilization and a unique site that honors pre-contact Indigenous life on the plains and as Saskatchewan's first UNESCO World Heritage destination. 
Of course, we needed to protect the incredible biodiversity of this ecological island um, in such a small footprint, especially as Saskatoon and surrounding communities and cities were growing all around the park. Um, basically pushing it to be as sad as a, like an urban park, something similar to what you would see at Central Park in New York or Stanley Park in Vancouver. And perhaps most compelling for many supporters, and I think most compelling for myself, uh, return a herd of genetically pure plains bison to Wanuskewin's Prairie. Bison are natural ecologists. They have shaped the Great, the great Plains, and they drew Indigenous people throughout millennia um, to this land. They, the, these people came to hunt, they came to camp, they came to connect the land and to each other. And the bison are a symbol and a beacon of something that was almost lost, but is coming back again to thrive. And isn't that a beautiful metaphor for our Indigenous people in Canada? So when we started fundraising, we had a goal to raise $25 million in cash and $15 million in adjacent lands. So UNESCO World Heritage designation will require us to have a buffer zone. Um, and we needed to expand our land base to, to establish that. The total was $40 million. Uh, this was in Saskatchewan, which most of you would agree is a fairly small province during an economic downturn uh, and various other challenges. Yes. About a year ago, we met that $25 million cash target, and we took a minute to pause. Would 2013 construction budgets meet building a building, get a building built in 2019 and 2020? May I ask you what the answer is? some head shaking. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's very much no. <laughs> so in order to execute the full project as had been envisioned, our target was increased. Uh, today, we're happy to share that we have about half a million dollars left to meet our project budget. We've raised more than $33 million in cash and uh, an additional $10 million in adjacent lands. So it's been a very successful campaign. Thank you. The acquisition of adjacent land was the result of a very strong partnership that we established with the city of Saskatoon, who came on board with a 99-year lease. Um, so those lands will be the home to a future bison herd. Um, and in addition, we looked beyond tradition, uh, Western government systems uh, to see where we might require support. So what resulted was um, a resolution that went to the seven tribal nations of the Saskatoon Tribal Council. Um, all seven nations uh, voted unanimously in support of our campaign, as well as UNESCO designation. We then took that resolution to the Federation of Sovereign Indigenous Nations in Saskatchewan, 74 nations. Um, that also resulted in a unanimous yes in support of the campaign and UNESCO designation. And then we took it to the Assembly of First Nations in Canada, and we had a unanimous vote yes. Uh, so... We're not sure that anything goes through unanimously in any government, uh, and we're quite thrilled with all, all three unanimous yes votes. And it was really, it was our volunteers on that cabinet that really helped drive that. Um, both our, our co-chairs, Felix and Wayne, um, but the, like, the other leaders, and especially the First Nations leaders who they were going to task, they were going back to their communities, their councils, their first name, like they were the ones who were shoulder tapping and having those hard conversations so that when we knew six months down the line this is going to the FSIN and we didn't know, they knew that the vote would be yes. So it, it really was a, it was really because of our volunteers who just bought into this vision and, and fought for it. So what does that mean for Wanuskewin? So first of all, how do you spend, I guess, how do you spend $40 million? We've got a really great project <laughs> manager who, uh, is rapidly spending, and I, yes. I joke that she has more fun than, than I do, but maybe not. We raise it, she spends it, it's good. <laughs> so we're doing a major building expansion and renovation. Um, the original building opened in 1992, and uh, uh, it's a really iconic building in Saskatchewan, um, and we certainly invite you all to come and see it for yourselves. Uh, but it's 25 years old, so wear and tear and various other infrastructure upgrades are needed. We also require a full site renewal, so we want to make sure that our trail systems are in top shape and uh, the visitor experience is strong. A new meeting space will have room for 350 people in the round. This meeting space can be divided into smaller meeting rooms and each room will have access to the outdoors. So this was another way that our campaign incorporated traditional values. Our elders asked that every room in the facility have access to the land. So they do. 
and four major exhibit galleries to complement our existing art programming. So uh, I'll just run through them very briefly, but the future, the new exhibits will be opening. Um, our aim is for the spring of 2020. And the Elders Welcome is the first introduction to Wanuskewin. Visitors will, be, uh, will enter in through a circular space. They'll hear personal welcome messages in the languages of the Northern Plains. They'll then enter a gathering place, which is a 360-degree theater with projections on the ceiling and reflections on the ground. It'll almost be like you're sitting beside a lake. We've been working with Manitoba elder uh, Wilfred Buck to tell us the Anishinaabe star stories on the ceiling projection. So many of us were raised with the Roman and Greek systems of the zodiac and um, astronomy. And what they've developed, what, what Elder Buck has developed, is um, a way to superimpose uh, indigenous star knowledge on top of that system. So this was such a sort of a mind-blowing realization for me that obviously people of the plains would not have seen a scorpion in the sky. Um, I don't know why that was hard to understand, but... Uh, that, that ability to superimpose different cultural traditions um, allows us to see that different people see the world in a different way um, and interpret the landscape in a different way. You'll then enter uh, what we refer to as the black box space. It's a large-scale immersive space that will guide visitors through eight themes. And those themes were just determined through community consultations that started in 2005. Um, we revisited them around 2013 and have found that this, the themes that have been identified early have remained um, relevant. So language is life. We'll teach visitors about the seven main language groups that traveled through Wanuskewin. We are spiritual people. We'll introduce the idea of spirit as part of an indigenous worldview. The value of ceremony as a teacher of tradition will be introduced. We all belong addresses the diversity that exists within nations. Archaeology at Wanuskewin takes visitors on a journey back through time through the significant archaeological discoveries uh, that have been made and that long history as Canada's longest-running archaeological research project. All My Relatives encourages visitors to see the connections between nations of the Northern Plains and how they're connected to the bison. And bison are the soul of the people, digs deeper into the connection between people and animals. Um, there's also some very cool, like, multi-touch bison hunt games and ways to, to get people um, interacting with history. And Promises Are Sacred helps visitors to understand the history of um, the treaty relationship in Canada. That will also include um, some very truthful narratives around truth and reconciliation in re the residential school history. We want to tell a very truthful and authentic Canadian story. We also want people to leave with tools to be able to step forward into their lives uh, on kind of a hopeful note. So that's sort of the vision for the visitor experience. And this sacred land is an exhibit related to the ethnobotany of Wanuskewin. So visitors will help be able to understand the unique ecosystem, traditional land management methods, and how geography and the environment continues to change and shape um, what we do at Wanuskewin, but also how, how we relate to Mother Earth. Uh, and then this is actually something that has got a surprising amount of national attention. It was actually recently featured in the Globe and Mail. Um, and it's a children's discovery playground. We're working with an Ontario-based company called Earthscape to design a state-of-the-art playground that pulls inspiration from the external environment um, while offering kids with the opportunity to learn through play. Um, Wanuskewin is not a heavily publicly funded facility. Um, most of our revenue comes in through school tours, um, meeting rooms, visitors. Uh, we, we generate our own revenue. So one of the things that we realized was the opportunity that we have with kids pulling on their guardians' sleeves, asking them to go back to that really cool playground. Or tricksters. It's good for everyone. <laughs> and the interior development and site improvements coincide with Wanuskewin's application to be Saskatchewan's first UNESCO World Heritage des des designated site. Um, we're also doing that with a comprehensive grassland restoration. Uh, and returning the bison. So all of these things are happening at the same time. Um, we're, we're in the middle of construction, we're applying for UNESCO designation, we're working on the grasslands, and everything's sort of intersecting um, all at once with the idea of a grand reopening without closing in um, 2020, or 2021, I'm sorry. And so what's we, what we wanna do today, um, and 
using a lot of that rich background in the context of how far it's come, is to loop this back to reconciliation. So the plans are, they sound amazing. I've seen them. They're like, they're incredible. It is going to be one of the top Canadian destinations for Indigenous tourism. But Wanuskaman is more than just that. And I mentioned earlier that I was drawn to this campaign um, to want to work on it. And for me, it was seeing something that this is a way not to necessarily press a reset button, button on what we as Canadians have done to our First Nations people and our Métis people, um, but more of how can we create a space where we can elevate Indigenous people where they can thrive on their own and they're not held back by systemic racism or held back to be kept on reserve land, but um, really bring it back to, okay, what does reconciliation look like? And we don't even know what it looks like right now, but we just know that we're moving towards that. So a lot of our communication, or actually say the majority of our communications, whether we were talking to Indigenous governance or non-Indigenous governance, donors, volunteers, supporters, whatever, we'd always want to bring it back to, okay, what are we trying to achieve here? Um, and so we looked at the Article 31.1 of the ONDRIP, the United Nations Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous People, and made a very clear tie between what Wanuskayim was trying to do with those four pillars and how it was actually connecting to um, what UNDRIP is asking people to respond, as well as the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's calls to action. Um, so we did a lot of work to make that connection and then gave that language to those supporters that we were going to ask for financial support or just moral support or connection support so that they didn't have to do the work on their own. We wanted to make it as easy as possible to say, here's what Wanda Scammon is doing, here's how it connects to reconciliation, here's how you can now be invited to participate in a way that, in a really real and tangible and significant way of, uh, of reconciling with our Indigenous people. And then we also spent um, a lot of time looking at the Truth and Reconciliation Calls to Action and outlined in so many government documents, I think there's like 150 of them, I don't know, like 500 briefs and everything too, um, where we looked, we specifically tied what Wanda's Game was trying to do with this campaign to the bigger picture. So looking at how it was responding to call number 14, that it's a site that can address the preservation, revitalization and strengthening of Indigenous languages and culture, um, call number 43 with UNDRIP, uh, call number 57 with renewal of the exhibit galleries and addressing public access um, to that competency. Call number 62, how Wanuskaman is currently preparing curriculum for use in classrooms to address Indigenous people's historical and contemporary contributions to Canada. Um, and then calls number 67, 79, and 92. Um, and so really looking at, number, call number 92 is actually a really nice win that we didn't realize was there, just waiting to be uncovered, of how Wanuskaman can be that vehicle for the corporate sector to implement UNDRIP as a framework for reconciliation. And when we laid that out in front of potential donors, especially potential corporate donors, you could just see the lights go on and like, okay, now we get this. We understand that the park is doing four different pillars and it's so multifaceted and we don't know where to put it in terms of our community investment, but we can take this to our shareholders and our stakeholders and say, this is how we're participating um, by responding to the calls to action. I think also, um Despite the fact that Stephanie and I are the ones who are, are presenting this to you today, it's, it's worth noting that our organization, One Escape in itself, um, is, is a diverse place. Uh, our CEO um, uh, has always been, in, or for the last number of years, is Indigenous. The chair of our board is Indigenous. And we aim for 50% um, Indigenous staffing at minimum in every department um, at every level of the organization. Uh, and that question uh, that Hadia asked yesterday, how many of you know there's a problem and aren't actually doing anything about it? Um, we specifically do something about it. We're making sure that um, there is meaningful diversity at every level of the organization and every level of governance. Um, so you just happened to get us, but you could have got anyone. Probably many more who are much more um, suited. So where is Buenos Aires today? So in 2018, uh, Saskatoon was listed, you may have heard this, uh, um, in the New York Times, 52 places to visit in 2018. Uh, and Wanuskaman was one of the featured destinations. Our art galleries consistently hit above their weight, and our current exhibition features uh, the work of woodland artist Norval Morisot. And this is the first time that um, this artwork has been shown in our region. Um, Wanuskaman's galleries are exclusive 
exclusively feature uh, indigenous art by indigenous artists. Um, so there is also a, a very strong commitment to supporting the local community. When we looked at what the campaign objectives were when we first started the campaign and what the outcomes were, so we wanted to reach that $40 million goal. Um, and as Tara mentioned, we raised over $33 million in cash, plus that additional $10 million in land value with the, with the city lease uh, in about three years. We wanted to acquire that sufficient land for the bison to be able to roam, which is, I think is going to be the coolest thing. Driving <laughs> on the highway, you're just going to see these bison like roaming in the city of Saskatoon. Um, and we got that with a, with a really strong partnership and uh, a strong relationship with the city. We wanted to stay within budget. That's where I come in. Uh, so we had our campaign costs were 6.9%, um, so below what you would normally see as an average for capital campaigns in Canada. And we wanted to create in-house structure. Um, so we wanted to make sure that the Wanuskewin would be strong long after DCG left. Um, so now there is a full-time fundraiser in Tara. There are policies, there's stewardship, um, and it's just a stronger organization that is moving forward to make sure that those donors that were acquired when we had no donor base, is uh, they're going to be there for generations to come and keeping them close by. We wanted to build a diverse and effective team. Uh, well, that was done with the cap. The cap the cabinet, um, but it's also ongoing as more stakeholders and supporters are coming to the table. And as Tara mentioned, there's a minimal 50% Indigenous staff at all levels at the park. We want to achieve the four pillars while construction is pro in progress with the Interpretive Centre. December 2017, less than a year ago, Wanuskewin was placed on Canada's tentative list for UNESCO World Heritage Sites, so the first in Saskatchewan. And grassland restoration is underway, and the bison will be back on the land in 2021. We wanted to recognize the multiple stakeholders, we wanted to communicate with them, and we wanted to invite them to participate in the campaign and um, in, this, in this way of being part of something that's bigger than themselves. Um, so we did get those unanimous resolutions, as Tara mentioned, uh, multiple letters of support, uh, many meetings with First Nations leaders, MPs, MLAs, councillors, like our our volunteer team was incredible and just constantly pushing to get those meetings in Ottawa, those meetings in Regina for our provincial government, and those meetings in, in Saskatoon and across the country. We hosted business leaders, we hosted the Canadian Cham Chamber of Commerce, we hosted the Canadian Commission for UNESCO, uh, countless briefs, emails, meetings, shoulder tapping, uh, solicitations, phone calls, um, and it did not hurt that we had a very healthy creative and travel budget to make all of this happen, which I know is not a reality for a lot of organizations out there. We, we wanted to approach na go national first, so we actually started solicitations by coming to Toronto here and meeting with the, the CEOs of the five, uh, the five biggest banks. Um, we got those meetings because of our volunteers' connections, um, and we got a gift from every single bank. Um, which was incredible. So we thought we'd maybe get two, we got all five. And we got all five within a year, confirming. And four of them came in at more than half a million dollars. Yeah. Um, we, we knew that we had to work with them, though, to figure out where they could place it. Because, again, like we've mentioned how different, how this is so faceted in so many ways. So is it ecology? Is it education? Is it youth? Is it indigenous? And, and that was really our job as fundraisers to make that very clear. So it's our job to make it easy for people to say, yes, this is exactly where it can fit. And I know, I, you know what, we're in the trenches with you. Like, we know that you do that and you're working hard at that every day. So I just want to like, like high five all of you right now because you guys are doing it. <laughs> uh, we engage our volunteers, uh, their own organizations and their staff to actually go and make connections for us. Um, and we ensured Wanuskewin had First Nations support the entire process and the entire campaign. We knew we needed to grow donor and stakeholder base. Um, our co-chairs have actually joined the board since the campaign. Uh, we've had donors join the board. And we had 39 gifts at $5,000 and above with an average gift of $818,000. So we had four gifts of $5 million, uh, $5 million plus, including a $12 million individual gift. And then plus we had the $10 million gift of land that came from the, the city of Saskatoon with that 99-year lease. Okay, so we want to uh, take some time right now just to talk about our key learnings um, and then just walk, go into some recommendations, making sure that we're leaving enough time for Q&A. Um, we need to make it fun and we need to make it supportive for our volunteers. Um, 
at DCG, that's that's what we do. We work alongside our clients. We let them shine. It's Juan Escawins. That, that's who is the local hero. That's who the donors are. That's who should be at the forefront. Um, but we're in the trenches. We're rolling up our sleeves. And our volunteers who bought into this vision, they got in the trenches with us. And um, they needed that support, but they also needed it to be fun. And so we, we, we got there. But yes. it was... <laughs> oh, you're managing millions and millions of dollars for your corporation. Like, how can we have fun? And I think Wayne Brownlee now does fist bump with me, so I'm pretty happy about that. <laughs> uh, we need to give very clear structure to our volunteers so they could execute um, their job as we laid out in their job descriptions. So we did a lot of volunteer training. We gave them the tools, the gift chart, the stewardship, um, everything that they need to do to actually pick up the phone and make that connection that we couldn't open the doors ourselves. And uh, then we did all of, we did the background work to get the proposal together and the research so that we were presenting a very targeted uh, ask. We had to be flexible when campaign best practices don't line up with traditional values. And in this case, Wanuskian's traditional values needed to be the, be, be the winner in this case. And we were fine with that. We attended calls with volunteers who were not yet comfortable with asking for money. So they would go in, they would share why they were involved. And then they would look at one of us, and then we would say, we'd like you to give $500,000 a year for five years, please. And then we'd turn it back to them to say, you need to do this. So, <laughs> And when, when you're the, the bank of Cameco, <laughs> bank of record, then you, uh, it's very hard to look at that CEO and say, we can't do that. So, uh, And you need to know that reconciliation and the calls to action look different for everyone. And I mentioned that, that at the start of our presentation. There's no one fit. Um, but we're going to talk a little bit in just a few minutes about some of the ways that you can explore that for yourself. In, uh, in my first week at Wanuskewin, I happened to walk into our restaurant, um, and I was having coffee, and an elder named Marjorie Bocash sat down across from me. And she said, you were new here? And I said, yes. And she said, it's important to know that we all have a place in the circle. The point is to take up all of your space, not too much and not too little. Uh, and it was such a timely reminder for me that, um, especially as um, someone who, uh, I, I attended the imposter syndrome workshop earlier today, I don't know if any of you were there, I think this is something that oftentimes um, we struggle understanding how much space to take up. And uh, what she taught me was that it's important to speak with and not for, understand where you're coming from, understand your frame of reference within within the, the story and within the narrative, um, but also speak up. Take up all of your space. Recognize that one person's experience does not represent an entire culture. I think we also heard Hedia say that um, uh, it's considered diverse if there's one woman on the board. Uh, that one woman does not represent the entire, uh, the entire world of women. So recognize that. Um, certainly reach out into your networks. Ask people questions. Uh, understand that their voice is not necessarily the, the one and only voice for every answer you're looking for. And educate yourself. Um, I can't really stress this enough as um, someone who comes from a, um, a mixed, mixed cultural background, but also having worked very closely um, in various populations. Uh, people of minorities are tired. They do not need to do more work in educating non non-minorities. Um, don't ask them to do more work by educating you. Educate yourself. Um, start by reading. Uh, there are a lot of great um, resources out there, and we'll go, we'll go through many of them. Um, but like, read fiction. There's truth in fiction. You can start with some of the incredible Indigenous authors we have in Canada. Um, and some of the, the great books I've read recently are by Thomas King, Joshua Whitehead, and Lisa Bird Wilson. So those are great places to start. Recognize that racism is alive and well in our country. And I think like we can hope for a better future, but the reality is that right now, um, we're, still, we're still working. We're st we still have a lot of work to do. And again, Hadea Rodriguez said yesterday, um, we know of the problem, but how many of us are actively working to decolonize systems of oppression? How many of us are willing to be uncomfortable ourselves to make things better for other people? Um, Listen to the elders. Uh, what you thought was a quick question may have a 45-minute answer. Yep. <laughs> um, when you thought you might be having a 20-minute meeting, you might be there for an hour and a half. Uh, it's important to be patient. Um, 
And also it's important to recognize that that time that that person is giving you, the stories they're giving you is a gift. So honor it. Um, allow yourself to relax and, and just be patient and listen. Um, language matters. So learn the terms, use the right ones. Most people that I talk to prefer the term indigenous. Um, some people prefer other terms. If you're not sure, ask them. Uh, and correct others who are still using racist terminology. I think that's something that, um, especially as non-Indigenous people, we have a really important role to play. Even things like understanding um, terms of clothing, terms of um, ceremonies. Use the right terms, if in doubt, ask. Um, and think beyond traditional systems. So it's not just Western governments that you need to lobby. Um, you also need to uh, consider sovereign systems of governance and recognize that different, um, you know, the whole point of a sovereign system is that people have agency and the right to choose. So you can't sort of force your way in. Um, everything is about relationship building. Um, at Wanuskewin, we've been very lucky that many of these relationships um, started in the early 1980s. These are long-standing, hard-won, genuine relationships. Um, so you can't, it's not like you can um, walk into um, a vote and tell people what they're going to do. Um, it's more than that. So some brief recommendations of what um, we say that we would recommend if this is something that you want to think about how you can participate in reconciliation uh, within your own organization um, or even your own campaign. Um, so read this, read this report, read the long, the big report. Uh, it's and figure out how you can respond to it as well. And I would also say be comfortable with discomfort. We did not know what this was going to look like at the end, um, and we still don't even know what this is. And I think that's the bigger question that people are having is like, okay, this is such a hot word, like reconciliation, but like how, what, can, what can I do? Um, and you may not know what that is right now, and you don't even, may not even know how it's going to look for your, for your charity or not your nonprofit long term. Um, but the important thing is that you're choosing to take a step forward now. Um, this is also a very useful. This is a wonderful book. resource. Yeah. It's um, a little calls to action booklet made by the National Center for Truth and Reconciliation. Uh, it's like a pocket guide to the different calls to action. I carry it around with me. I reference it in board meetings. Uh, it's fantastic. Um, we will give one away for the best question asked. <laughs> Seek out organizations like the Office of the Treaty Commissioner. Uh, I'm not sure if there are offices in all of your own cities, um, but it's, there's organizations out there that are wanting to do things to help you participate in reconciliation. Uh, also with the yes. Office of the Treaty Commissioner in Saskatoon, they're actually working on a guide um, on how to move forward. Uh, the pillars haven't been um, finalized yet, but they will include something along the lines of having a shared understanding of history, building authentic relationships, recognizing the strong cultures and worldviews that make up our country, um, and moving towards systems that represent and benefit everybody. Um, I think those four points are things that we can just incorporate in our, our lives. Um, do we have the same understanding of history as everyone else in the room? Yeah. And, or, and organizations or associations like Reconciliation Saskatchewan to find out how you can get involved. Again, this may not exist in your, in your actual city, but then maybe that's a chance for you to create one for yourself. Uh, we recommend reading the Philanthropic Communities Declaration of Action. Um, who here has signed this? Like, who, charity? Okay, perfect. I love seeing hands go up when I ask this. Um, so this is, a, this is groups of nonprofits and charities that have said, we are going to look at the calls to action and figure out how we can respond to this. Um, so read it. There's, there's a link there, and we can always give you the link afterwards, too, but it just Google it and it'll pop up. And then sign it. That was pretty, pretty key. Um, AFP Saskatoon, our local chapter, we signed this three years ago. Um, and then we've, part, we've looked at different ways that we can actually um, choose to respond. Um, and then from the declaration, determine how you can do one of, one of those three areas or all three areas. So learning about, about what happened and then remembering it understanding it as best as possible, and also acknowledging what happened, um, and then participate and act. Um, and this is including, this is a direct quote, by sharing our networks and our voices and our resources to include and benefit Indigenous peoples. That's a pretty strong statement. And that can be very scary, because we've been there, but it's, it's a great statement to think about how can we share even just our networks or our resources or our voices 
to include and benefit Indigenous people. And finally, I just want to speak very briefly about um, something called the culture, culture of reciprocity. Um, we have a pending leadership gap in our city, or in our country, as we're looking at baby boomers retiring over the next couple of years. Um, in the fundraising sector, this is extra scary, right? Because we already have a shortage of really good fundraisers, especially that we don't have viable career, pa- like, viable career paths for these youth coming up into university or colleges to see like this is where this is the education they can do to um, follow to become fundraisers. There's also the future Indigenous workforce. Um, this is something that's it's it's out there. It's very you can easily find it online. Um, but we have the fastest growing Indigenous population in Saskatchewan, and that is also being shown across the country as well too. So we have this. We have all these baby boomers that are retiring that are going to have all these jobs. And we have this growing young indigenous population that are going to fill those jobs. But there's a gap in terms of what we're doing right now to help lift, lift up indigenous people to make sure that they're getting the access and access to education and the resources they need so that they can thrive on their own. Uh, Bruce Miller was at, uh, he was formerly at Inspire, and, and he's the one who introduced me to this this concept of culture of reciprocity. And he said that it's actually um, it's very much embedded in a lot of Indigenous cultures. And Roberta Jameson, who is the CEO of Inspire and an activist, has said the same thing. It's way more complex than a two-way, a two-way exchange. Um, but there's something very cool about our sector being about people and relationships and Indigenous culture having this in, embedding this thing about giving back and doing more than just what's for ourselves, right? So at the intersection of our pending leadership gap, across our country and our up-and-coming future Indigenous workforce and this culture of reciprocity, there's an opportunity here that we need to explore as fundraisers and I would even say as AFP Canada of how we can tap into that and work to make sure that we're engaging those young Indigenous youth at this point um, to see if if there's an interest and there is gifts there for them to to enter our sector. It almost seems like such a natural fit but we are going to lose that opportunity if we don't jump on it now. As we get ready to welcome the world to Wanuskewin, we recognize the people who've always come before us, the people who continue to stand beside us, including our donors. Wanuskewin is a gathering place, and it's taken the whole community committed to and supportive of this transcendent story for us to be successful. And we'd like to end with a short video, and then we'll take some questions. At the end of that sweat lodge in 1984, an elder named Lawrence Tobacco spoke on behalf of the group. He said, we're going to be in on this. We're going to be in on it because we think it's good for education. We think it's good for First Nations kids living off reserve who maybe don't have access to culture. We think it's good for non-First Nations kids too. Maybe they'll learn something about treaties and obligations. He said, the real reason we're going to do this is that it's bigger than all of us. It was meant to happen. Thank you. Okay, now, for the best question in the room, we have this handy guide on the TRC Calls to Action. For the second to fifth best questions, (laughs) we have these fancy USB keys. So ask us anything. Yes. Hi. Um, I know that you've said that um, in terms of your prospect list for who 
you'd reach out to, um, that was all, you know, put for approval from your indigenous cabinet members and whatnot. But were there any um, examples of, of some of the corporate corporations that you would go after where there had been kind of a conflict between how they treated indigenous people in the past or how they might have used the lands or oil companies or that kind of thing where it was kind of an awkward line to walk to try to meld those two interests? Certainly. Uh, and I think, um, I think in general, um, that's a tough line to walk for, for fundraisers. Uh, and some organizations choose not to, to go in a corporate route for that exact reason. Um, the donations that we ended up receiving uh, all came from organizations that our elders were comfortable with. Um, and we didn't ask any, um, we didn't approach any companies that our elders weren't comfortable with. Um, so we really just relied on them um, to help guide us in that. And we did get funding from our, the mining companies, the, um, the potash companies, like the uranium company. Like there's, there were definitely some on there that um, could have ruffled some feathers at maybe the staff level, I would say. But it was when, the, when you have that elders council on there saying, we, we want this. And those companies have a history of saying, this is how we want to engage with our indigenous people. And this is what we're doing for um, indigenous employment. So Cameco is really good with that because they are so focused on ensuring that they are doing um, duty to consult with their northern communities and they're investing a lot of money in, in um, the northern prairies for that. So they have that reputation long before we came knocking on their doors. Oh, so many questions. <laughs> so it's um, not particularly related to capital campaigns. Um, that I'm, I'm sitting here with a fellow, actually, and a mentor from the AFP Fellowship in Inclusion and Philanthropy. And we had a very interesting uh, training in DNI on Sunday with the fellows. And there was a very strong moment um, between the facilitator and one of the fellows. And there was, um, I think, some pushback against uh, some of the fellows who are Caucasian. And uh, I'm wondering how, uh, in the process that you went through, how the, the two of you being non-Indigenous, uh, did you find there was pushback on that? I know you really stressed speaking with and not speaking for, uh, but were there moments that you felt you had to navigate that? <laughs> Yes. <laughs> well, even even in my personal life, I would say there was something that happened this past summer up at a up at a lake, and it's and it, it it's very much a it is one of those strong moments where there's there's a clash, right? And and it's it can be very emotional at times, and I can just imagine what happened in your room on Sunday. Um, I I don't yeah I don't know how I don't know how best to navigate those types of situations beyond trying to stay calm and also recognizing that this is a pretty key moment in history. And, I, and I'm not talking one scale, I'm talking like that clash, like that pushback, because it's a moment that can educate someone, it can ask someone to see, to see something in a different light. Um, and when you're engaging in, co in conversation, especially around these kind of, these kind of issues and, uh, and around our very dark history that many of us probably were never taught in school, that in itself, I think, is you're participating in reconciliation in some way. So I would say, um, because in the campaign side, where we had, we had an Indigenous leader with us on all the calls, and we had Dr. Ernie Walker, who's an honorary chief, all the calls, there was a respect there. Um, and I think the few calls that went on where there was just, just no interest whatsoever, it was just, okay, we just know that, that where they want to invest their money is not this is not Wanuskewin. And that's okay, because it's a vision for people that want to capture that vision. I don't know if I answered your question, but when you said a very strong moment, there's very much, you can sense the emotion in my voice a little bit about this, because those are the moments that we need to like not try to get past and try to get back into a place of comfort, but we need to stay in them, because it's going to be important long term. Thank you. Uh, I just had a question around uh, your approach in the initial consultation to develop the project and the inevitable conversation around uh, how you're going to work together and specifically the capital conversation that you're having around this colonial system we have of how people are going to get paid and how you negotiated that and then how you applied those learnings to your organization. Can you reframe your question? Yeah. Um, how did you 
how did you propose an estimate to them in a way that um, includes the learnings you're talking about around forgetting traditional methods of what we would do in our sector to um. happen, but you know, you're still needing to get paid your business at the end of the day. Yeah. And that's, yeah, that's, I can speak on from the consulting side mm -hmm. where um, we were involved in conversations long before they decided to even go to 40 million. Like they just, they're like, oh, we need some exhibits. Let's, let's do that, right? Um, so it was, yeah, it was very much a, it's, it's an approach of like, okay, we need to make sure we understand what you're doing. And I think it's for us, and I, I can only speak on behalf of my company, it's very much a, one, Skaven is unique in itself just like your organization is unique and your organization is unique and your like you guys are all unique right so we need to make sure that we're fully understanding just how unique you are so then when it it comes time for okay well let's you know this is what our best practice is and we're hearing we can't do that because of the mission we need to make sure we're not doing anything on on the on the consulting side that's ever going to hamper that vision because those elders and that staff and Tara and the people and Dr. Walker and all of those people that created those relationships back in the 80s um, and that's those people at the sweat lodge, they did so much work before we ever showed up. So we need to honor that and we need to make sure that we are never doing anything to ever hinder that and it's only, showing, it's only moving forward in a way that is best for the organization. And if that means that we had to walk away... I'm glad it didn't because this is probably one of my favorite projects I've ever worked on. But it was very much uh, we we have walked away on other on other things because we just we, you can't see eye to eye, and that's not a bad thing because it's not a good fit and it has to be a good fit. Yeah, from Wanuskewin side, Wanuskewin has always done things, I guess, in kind of a different way. Um, as early as the 1980s, it's always been an an, an organization of um, indigenous and non-indigenous people working together to do something for the greater community. Um, as well, the site itself is not owned by one nation. It was a gathering place of all of the different groups. Um, so that's also created a slightly different governance structure. It's not um, one of the, the big questions we were often asked is, you know, was this reserve land? Did you get approval to do this? Um, it's not. It's, it, it belongs to everybody. Uh, and so I think that also helped guide us. Um, and I think uh, one of the sessions earlier uh, commented on, like, just do the right thing. Um, so we just do the right thing. We just try to do our best. Uh, when we know better, we do better. Um, and that's kind of the philosophy of the organization. So um, that meant uh, there were conversations Steph and I had with donors when donors were asking us to do stuff that we, weren't we were starting to feel uncomfortable about. And yep. at one point, Steph said, you know, you can walk away from this. You do not have to accept this. Um, and we were able to navigate through, and we did actually have to walk away from um, at least one major donation um, because they were they were asking for for us to give up our values as an organization. I think we have time for just one last uh, question. Thank you. Um, my name is Rebecca, and I'm from Winnipeg, Hi. and uh, I am I do have Indigenous background. Um, and you know, hearing the drums, hearing, seeing the imagery, it was very emotional for me because I do have a story of the heritage being removed. And I think even with that, having it removed and for me to go back to it is really difficult. And I have the heritage, I have, I have that, that history. Um, I think the big one is trust. And you, it takes time to earn that trust. And I think in my own experience with elders um, and things like that, that was always something. You could never walk into a room and say, how are you? I, I, really, wanted, I really want you to be involved with this. And it was, it was trust that I think was the epitome, and it takes time. Um, and it is uncomfortable, but I think, I think we have to lean into it, like you said. And I think in a situation like that, Take a breath, take a moment, and just say, I can see this is uncomfortable. What do you need from me right now? You know, and just, and just listen. And um, I guess my question to you is, how did you gain that trust? And, and, yeah, I guess it's all about leaning into it, I guess. But I would like to hear that. Um, for me, it was um, a lot of listening. I think just a lot of listening. I had to trust... Um, that uh, Wanuskewin found me. Um, so um, when they, they were giving me uh, a, a, 
many people who come to Wanuskewin, um, there's a lot of spirit that exists there. Uh, and often the stories will say that Wanuskewin pulls in the people who need it. Um, and I was in a stage in my personal life where uh, I needed it. I needed Wanuskewin. Um, and so the, the people I was working with um, at the time placed a lot of trust in me. Uh, so I think the fact that they had existing relationships with those long-standing um, elders and community consultation people. Um, and then I think it was just being really honest. I, um, I come from a different background. I don't know the answer to this. I don't know how to navigate this. I don't even know what to wear. How do I approach a sweat lodge ceremony? How do I approach a feast? How do I, what do I do? Um, and being humble and being trusting um, was, I think, how I was able to better um, occupy my space. Uh, and then I have a very strong um, commitment to the fact that I'm holding space now. Uh, and at some point, there will be an Indigenous fundraiser working at Wanuskewin. Um, and it will be a joy and a privilege to, to pass on um, what we've done with this project to whomever that is. I would, I would echo the, the listening part and the humility part. Um, it's... It was even like a shift of language. I'll just, I'll just touch on briefly on that. I come from a sales and marketing background. So when we talk about selling the name of something, you can't do that with elders around, around the table. So we changed. We looked at what the language had to change so that we were still honoring what we were trying to do, which is bring in, bring in money to be able to achieve this incredible vision, um, but in a way that was res resonating with them. Um, I'm always a, a huge fan of Seth Godin and the, mark, the marketing guru. And he always talks about uh, worldview frame, frame of worldview. And it's, that's how we, we need to look at um, not just one of Skywin, but any organization that we work with and with our, any, even our specific donors, individual donors, is how are we need to engage with you in this moment, in this time where what I'm sharing with you is going to resonate with your worldview. Because it's really, it's not about, it's not about me. And it's, in the end, it's about something bigger than, bigger than me, bigger than Tara. And yes, I, I believe Wanuskewin also chose me. And it's a very, I won't get into the path that I followed to, that even when I ended up in Saskatoon, like, <laughs> really. Um, but I'm just, I'm so grateful for it. And it was, it was very, it was very easy and authentic to tell the elders around the table and, the, and those First Nations leaders that are now friends of mine, it is an honor to work on this project. And you can't, you can't fake that. Oh, good. Uh, I think that's all the time we have. If you have more questions, please come and talk to us. Yes. Those of you who ask questions, please come and get your USB. And um, whoever's the most complimentary can have this. Let's give it to Rebecca. Let's give it to Rebecca. Let's give it to Rebecca from Winnipeg. Rebecca from Winnipeg? Rebecca from Winnipeg? Yeah. Oh, okay. Perfect. I would say the lady. Yeah, the lady. Of the, yeah, there we go. There we go. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you so much, Stephanie and Tara. Um, on behalf of AFP, we'd like to present you with a token of our appreciation. Oh, no, thank you so much. Uh, thank you so much, Adam. Thanks so much. Thanks. Oh, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. And for everybody here, if you haven't already done so, please take a moment to fill out either the paper evaluation forms or save a tree and use the app. Um, the speakers will appreciate any feedback you have as well. Great. Thank you. <laughs>